Let's make real estate for everyone. Welcome to the Addy Podcast. At Addy, we're on a mission to make every human a homeowner. On our podcast, we share real estate investing best practices, industry news, and advice from real life experts. Keep up to date with what we're doing at addyinvest.com. I'm Katie Kernahan, and today on episode number 11 of the Addy Podcast, we talk with Marco DiPaolo, Executive VP of Colliers, about how remote work may impact commercial real estate. Marco has 20 years of experience with Colliers, working primarily with users of real estate. His unbiased and creative approach emphasizes strategic real estate planning based on corporate objectives and the business needs of his clients. So let's get into it. Uh, The future of remote work and commercial real estate. Welcome, Marco. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Awesome. So maybe just to kick things off, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Uh, so I've worked at Collier's for, uh, for over 20 years. I got involved in commercial real estate fairly young. I um, saved up a bunch of money while I was in university and started investing in my first properties when I was in my uh, early 20s and um, would just buy properties and fix them up and rent them out and sort of liked that program and uh, turned it into uh, turned it into a career. So flash forward, you know, 20, 25 years later and um, spent a good part of my career working in commercial real estate and love it. Still learning things, learning things every day and um, yeah, enjoy it very much. Awesome. So you mentioned that you bought uh, properties in your early twenties. What did you start out with? What was your first property? Uh, very first one that I bought was a, um, small condominium over in the false creek sort of area and um it was uh pretty rough and so i rolled up my sleeves and just figured out how to do everything to fix it up on my own so um so i just you know had to figure it out (laughs) it wasn't (laughs) like uh back then unfortunately uh you couldn't just flip open your phone and google how to do everything. So that was a little bit more of a challenge, but, um, but you know, it's great. I really enjoyed it and, um, like dealing with people, liked dealing with tenants and, uh, that's, that was the first property. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. Yeah. And so you started with residential and then have you moved into investing in commercial real estate yourself or strictly residential? Yeah. Commercial was further down the road just because commercial just requires a little bit more capital, but, um, but yeah, no, but commercial was down the road. So now it's residential, it's commercial properties. So it's kind of a mix of uh, mix of both. Cool. Um, and so maybe just give us a little bit of background as well on Colliers and your role there. Yeah. So at Colliers, so Colliers is a international global real estate company. We're, we're pretty big. I mean, we've got 15,000 employees globally, 400 offices around the world. Um, interestingly, the company started here in Vancouver, uh, well over a hundred years ago. I think we're, uh, like company registered number eight at the Royal bank in downtown Vancouver. So, um, so we got off the ground here in Vancouver and a group of individuals took the company, uh, across Canada and globally. And, um, and, uh, and that's where we, uh, and that's where we stand today. The company does, um, you know, we, we, we've gone from a very basic real estate company to a company that now specializes in almost every single aspect of commercial real estate that you can imagine. 
including all kinds of different types of consulting, property management. Uh, our property management company in Canada is one of the largest, if not the largest in Canada. Um, one of our ultimate owners is, uh, is a company called First Service. And that company is uh, the largest property management company in North America. So we're, uh, we're well rooted in, uh, in commercial real estate and, um, and have a lot of different aspects to, uh, to the business. Cool. And then your role at Colliers is in the commercial real estate space as well? Yeah, so I'm uh, so I'm an executive vice president. Um, I um, I specialize in office leasing. So with a company of our size, you know, essentially what happens is is that everybody gets very specialized in what they do and what they can provide. And so you know we have more expertise in any one given area than uh, than you would in say you know tertiary markets, small markets. You've got commercial real estate firms and and individuals that work there tend to do everything just because they have to but usually in the big cities you get um, very highly skilled individuals that know their one particular segment very very well and so mine is uh, office leasing and investment but but primarily revolving around office uh, product in vancouver specifically in vancouver specifically yeah Cool. Um, and so just, you know, before we get into it, I was curious to know, like, what, what your personal philosophy on real estate investing is. Obviously, you started early. Is that something that you would recommend to people in the younger generations, get in early, um, saving your money? You know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I had a client many, many years ago, and who's a friend now, who, um, uh, who was sort of a little bit of a mentor for me. And um, just <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be kind of silly advice, but, uh, but, if, but, but the advice is this, it's just buy, buy anything you can afford, but just do it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, because there's so many ways and there's so many people that will talk you out of investing in real estate. There's always reasons not to do it. People will always find reasons not to do it. But, you know, if your if your objective is long term and not short term, um, I'm not a short term real estate investor at all. I I look way way out into the future, and so um, I don't ever want to sell anything if I don't have to. Uh, I just want to buy things for the long term. And if you have a long term approach, whether you need to get in with partners or whether you need to get in with friends or you buy something that's in maybe an area that you might not have really considered you know, just buy something because over time, it's really, really hard to beat what real estate can do over the long term. And it, it, it really does compound. And, you know, 10, 15 years down the road, it's um, really pays off. So, uh, so, you know, and obviously get good advice, seek good advice. Everybody's risk tolerance is going to be different. So, um, you know, understand what you're buying and uh you know getting in with organizations that can let you put in less money but you also learn all along the way those are all good tips from my perspective it's, it's like anything else you know if you just roll up your sleeves and dive in ask a lot of questions you um, you'll get the answers and then you'll make a decision that's right for yourself right and do you find that it's better to get, find a property that you know you can fix up and do some renovations to versus buying something that's pretty turnkey yeah, soup. It's very personal. So, so some people just don't want anything to do with their investment. They just were like, "Can I just put money in and then go back to my business, and then that's it?" 
and others really want a value add. You know, the, the, the benefit of value add, if you, if, you know, if you've got the stomach for it is, um, you know, it's, you, you can turn around a quicker return uh, right out of the gate because you can take something that, you know, maybe has problems or people are scared of, um, you know, could be, a, you know, something that's tenanted with undesirable tenants that, you know, are um, maybe not the nicest of people and doing bad things. And, you know, you got to fix those kinds of problems and figure them out and you can turn properties around fairly quick. So that's why a lot of people like value add properties right out of the gate. But, you know, it's the old adage, right? Nothing's free in this world. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you want sort of an immediate higher return, you got to take the risk and the risk is, is, you know, you might get into something that's got a bunch of problems that you got to have the stomach to fix. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I could do that myself or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, you know, there's lots of organizations out there that will, uh, you know, like yourselves, that'll just say, Hey, listen, we'll take care of all that. And we will have all the experts, but they'll let you invest, you know, anything from a dollar to a lot more. So um, I think that, uh, you know, maybe that might be a good starting point, but you know, my, my, my advice would be to just get in and get involved um, get invested early, um, diversify. I mean, that's, 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 you know, don't just have all your eggs in one basket. Um, you know, I, I've got money in a lot of different areas, um, in businesses, uh, stock market, real estate. So, you know, it's, it's, it's better to be divested quite well so that you can weather the storm if any one particular industry takes, uh, takes a little bit of a hit. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And yeah, like at Addy, we're trying to, for people that, you know, don't have the large down payment, helping them find a way to get into the market. And as you say, take care of everything for them. Yeah. Um, okay, great. So let's kind of get into what we're here to talk about, um, which is commercial real estate and remote work. Um, so I'd love to know how Colliers has, you know, changed your approach during COVID-19 across, say, like property management, office leasing, office management. Uh, well, you know, that's an interesting question. So I, I think right off the top, we've, we've all, and, and this probably applies to a lot of people on this phone call, we've all had to become experts on something that we didn't really know a whole lot about. Um, and we're kind of all hoping that we wouldn't know anything or have to learn anything about, but, but, but here we are. And um, we've been all been forced to sort of, uh, you know, figure out our, our new worlds. And that's kind of what's going on at Collier's. So we've had to figure out a whole bunch of new things. So, you know, how are we going to operate our office? Because, you know, we've got an office here in Vancouver with hundreds of employees doing all kinds of different things. And um, our office is, is closed. Uh, we can still access our office, but effectively it's closed. And uh, it opens up uh, in about a week's time. And when we open up, we're going to open up at about a third capacity of what we typically did. So we're now having to figure out you know, how is that office going to operate? We've got all kinds of new protocols on how we're going to operate, uh, how we're going to distance, um, keep people apart, and still kind of run a normal, you know, hopefully profitable business. Um, that's what uh, the challenge that everybody's facing. And so a lot of our clients are coming to us and asking us what we're doing, and they're trying to figure it out. So, you know, it's really a combination of trying to sort out what you're doing uh, and how you're going to carry forward with all the challenges that have been put to us as, uh, as a, you know, human race. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's kind of where we stand at, uh, at Collier. So it's, it's really just figuring out. So whether it doesn't matter what discipline it is, whether it's office leasing or if it's property management, I mean, you know, how are, how are these buildings going to operate? You know, a lot of people don't really realize, but like, you know, you think about all these office towers downtown that are, you know, 30, 40 stories high. Well, now if you're social distancing, how does the elevator system work? You know, you put two or three people maximum in an elevator well you know it's going to take three to four hours to fill up those office buildings well you know by the time the office building fills up it's lunchtime so you know operationally how does an office building function in this environment now fortunately most businesses are coming back the same way they're coming back like at 30 percent capacity so that's going to offset some of that but so, you know, when you talk about changes of what we're thinking about, there's, there's, there's a lot and, um, and we're dealing with it ourselves and, and, and helping our clients deal with it as well. Are you finding that, so you're coming back in a third capacity, like how, how have you decided which, which employees are part of the third that comes back to the office and which are the ones that stay remote? We leave the bad ones at home and we let the good ones come to the office. No, no, I'm just joking. We, we, so what, it's a great question though, because, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you, how do you actually do that? And so what, what we're doing and, and, and what you're going to find many companies are doing and what we're advising clients is you essentially just work people on shifts so that everybody essentially comes to the office. It's just, instead of me working five days a week out of the office, I would work three days one week and then two days the other week, and then you just alternate. And so everybody ends up coming into the office and then you just, what we did is we worked out a floor plan so that, um, you know, it reduces the density and how close people are to each other. So, um, so everybody's kind of coming in on shifts on the basis of not being all right beside each other, because, you know, if you've got, um, offices, that's fairly straightforward. I mean, you know, people go in their offices and away you go, but you know, as it's gone over the years, there's a lot of people working in open space. And if you're in a cubicle, you know, and that cubicle pod, if you will, holds eight people, you wouldn't want all those eight people in on one day. So you, you know, you have four people in on the one day and the next day you have the other four people in and then you'd be able to sort of distance everybody apart appropriately. Right. Um, So I read a stat that, you know, by the end of March, 36.8% of Metro Vancouver businesses had their workforces working remote 80% of the time. Um, And then as you say, they're only bringing a third back or in your case anyway, um, do you think that the, you know, the sudden growth in remote work is going to change the way big business operates specifically around, you know, where people can live and work maybe outside of major centers like Vancouver? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And, 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 you know, everybody's been asking it and, um, you'll get a lot of opinions. You're going to get mine as well. Uh, but I don't know if there's any one right answer and I don't know if anybody has the answer because this is something that, you know, we, we haven't really faced before. Everybody's been sort of pushed into the deep end and some have fared real well and others have not. And a lot of companies that you would think would have problems didn't have any issues at all and are actually flourishing in today's environment and others are struggling that you wouldn't struggle. I mean, I've got a client that is, um, uh, you know, major, major, one of the biggest co- companies in Canada, which I probably should mention, which I won't, 
<laughs> that, um, you know, when this happened, they moved all their staff remotely and, you know, it took them well over a month, if not longer, to actually get the whole network system working properly so that everybody could be working at home and accessing their corp company information and, and back and forth. And being such a big company, they uh, obviously security is a big issue, but they just weren't prepared to take their, they had a system that was good for 20% of their people working at home, but never intended to accommodate 100% of their people working from home. And so for those companies that were prepared to have a platform and all those types of things, those are just, you know, those are things we, we, we did as a company just by fluke. Um, you know, we started working on our mobile work from home type of thing several years ago, but that was only, it was only because our employees wanted a flexible type of work environment so that they didn't, they weren't sort of, didn't just have to work from the office. They could work from on the road, uh, cause a lot of our, uh, advisors are out on the road all the time. Uh, they could work from home, you know, they could sort of be a little bit more free. Uh, and so because we did that, it made this transition easier for us. For companies that traditionally work in the office and there isn't that sort of force that's out into the marketplace as much, you know, they never really prepared for that. And so that's, 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 a, that's been a real struggle. It's been a real struggle. So it's been all over the map on how people have, um, have responded as far as um, being able to sort of work from home 100% of the time. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, as you say, you know, it's a forcing function to get certain businesses to move online really quickly. And once they've done the legwork to get people online, it's like, will they go back to the way it was or will they, you know, find a way to keep everyone remote and maybe reduce their uh, commercial space downtown and save that overhead cost? That's the million dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> And then, you know, maybe people could live in Kelowna or Victoria and still have, you know, the HQ in Vancouver would be interesting. Um, and so I guess kind of along that line, like Shopify, Twitter, Facebook, Google, they're sort of leading the way in that regard, announcing that they'll be working remote permanently. Um, you know, and Shopify quoted the office centricity is over. Um, do you think that this is going to be the way of the future? No, I don't. I, I, I think that um, if you ask, the, ask me the question of, do I think things are going to change? They're absolutely going to change. There's no way that you can have something like this happen and the whole environment of how people work going forward is, is going to change. Uh, it's going to change for sure. But, you know, I think that to say that everybody is going to work from home going forward and making those kinds of bold statements, I think are convenient things to say for different reasons, other than that's really how it's going to go going forward. Because, you know, most people really haven't thought through the consequence of everybody working from home. Um, there's pluses and there's minuses, but I think, you know, unfortunately, some of the minuses can be so uh, seriously consequential on the other end that it'll strongly outweigh whether or not I have to carry an office space um, at whatever cost. You know, most companies, their overhead on, on office space, the, 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 the percentage that's allocated to that is five or 6%. So as much as it's a big cost, there's no question about that. 
it's not the be all and end all. And, you know, companies are not going to choose people working from home to save a little bit of money on real estate. If there's some sort of consequential negative effect that ends up affecting the business in a negative way. So, um, you know, for example, knowledge transfer, knowledge transfer is a big thing. So if you're, how do you get knowledge transfer when you're not around other people and seeing how they do things? You know, when we, when we look at even in our office is a great example, we've got people that have been there for, you know, just a few months and people that have been there for like myself, well over 20 years, it's really hard to transfer knowledge to those younger individuals. I mean, that's how I learned everything that I know how to do. You know, most of it came from senior people working at our company in all kinds of different capacities. You know, how does that happen when everybody's at home? And, um, you know, and is the productivity at home really what people are purporting it to be? I don't think so. I really don't. Um, I've talked to a lot of different companies and a lot of different individuals. We have, a, you know, it's all we do day in and day out. And I think people think their productivity is a lot higher at home than it actually is. We've got a couple of clients that actually track their productivity and they know exactly how long it takes to do certain things. And they've been tracking how long those things take to get executed by people at home and by people in the office. And it's about 20% longer to execute on projects with this one specific company uh, for people at home. Uh, so as much as they think they're, productivity is decent at home. I, you know, I, I just don't know if it, if it really is. And I think that, you know, the novelty of working at home, um, might be wearing off a little bit. Um, now these are sort of general comments. There's, there's some companies that working from home works fantastic and, and it will work fantastic forever. But I think that the, 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 the secret sauce is really going to be in finding the right balance for your specific company and really more for the specific individual. I think that if you can offer an individual choice, that's probably the best thing because, you know, within our office, I've got people within my team that um, are in the office 20% of the time. And I've got people on my team that are in the office 120% of the time. They're constantly there because that's what they like and that's how they find themselves to be productive. So I think the, I think the sweet spot is in the choice and the flexibility rather than trying to just put a box on it and say, this is going to work for everybody. I think that's really how it's probably going to roll going forward. I think what, what has happened now has forced companies to say, wow, you know what, this work from home thing actually can work. Now, where's our sweet spot uh, for us as a company? Yeah, exactly. Well, and as you say, with the knowledge transfer, you know, it's like, what does that do to, um, you know, like the water cooler talk is not happening as much. And like, how does that impact company culture? Like, how do you move those things online? They're sort of the intangibles of being, you know, next to each other in a workspace. Yeah, no question. I mean, it's all, it's all revolves around, um, you know, profitability, but, but, you know, and everybody knows that that's not a secret, but the, the precursor to profitability is productivity. And so, you know, how will you be as a company going forward productive? And most companies are productive when their employees are happy. So, you know, if they're happiest at home part of the time and, and, and at work part of the time, then that's great, you know, but, you know, it's, it's finding that right balance before you can sort of say what's right for any one company.
Yeah, exactly. Um, I read another stat that it was a PwC survey that said that 26% of US companies are now looking to reduce their real estate requirements um, this year. And I'm curious if you know that's translated all in Vancouver market. Like have you have you seen a, a drop in leasing demand at all? Oh no question, yeah. The, 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 the drop in leasing demand has probably been, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of say, call it three months into this now. And, and, and I would say it's probably dropped off at least 50%. And in some instances, maybe up as much as 75%. Um, and that sounds worse than it is. Um, I think most of that is a result of people just taking the wait and see approach. Um, you know, the difference between office leasing is most people in an office leasing environment have a lease that lease turns over and that requires people to make decisions regardless of what's going on in the market. Mm -hmm. So good or bad, if I have a lease that comes up in six months or 12 months or whatever the size of my individual, my company is, I have to make a decision on what I'm going to do. Do I stay? Do I go? Do I get bigger? Do I get smaller? I have to make a decision. If I have to make a decision, I have to consult experts or at least my executive team and say, what are we gonna do going forward? So from a leasing perspective, you gotta make a decision. From an investment perspective, most people don't really have to make a decision unless they're forced. Uh, it's rare, generally speaking, over the long term that people, um, you know, when we're talking about the aggregate number of, of all the investment transactions that occur, it's very rare that, that, that a large portion of it is forced. It's mostly decision-based. Uh, and in that instance, that essentially means in a time like this, people just don't make decisions. People just say, you know, generally speaking, unless I'm in sort of a financial pinch or there's a problem, they're going to say, okay, look, let's just wait and see where things go. So I think as a, I think what the biggest drop in demand from a investment standpoint, from an office standpoint, you know, general commercial real estate standpoint, people are taking a wait and see approach. And the reason I say, I don't think it's so devastating is because if I have to make a decision on something and I just decide not to do it right now, that doesn't mean that decision disappears forever. It just means that it's just getting deferred out later. So what'll likely happen is as things come back, all the decisions that would have otherwise occurred over the last two, three, four, five months, however this long this goes on for, they just keep getting decisions that just get deferred out and they either get made during the process or they just get made later on down the road. And, um, and that's essentially what's happening in our market, commercial real estate, generally speaking. Right. Um, and so what about the sublease market? Like I've read that a lot of companies downtown um, are putting their spaces up for sublease, um, hoping to rent it out to another company and that that number is rising. Um, have you, have you seen that as well? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's another good question there. Uh, everybody's asking that question and um and we're tracking that information and there's no doubt just to answer your question like right out of the gate that sublease spaces are increasing quite substantially um so so to put it in sort of some you know some numbers in uh caught three months ago you would have 10 new subleases that have come on in the market whereas now uh last month you would have 40 new subleases that have come on the market. So that's a pretty substantial increase. Um, you know, you've gone from a total number over that same period of time, three months ago, 50 subleases in the downtown area to as much as 150 now. Mm -hmm. 
So that's a significant increase. The um, one comment that I would add to that though is, is that the majority of those subleases are quite on the smaller side. So there are companies that are, call it 10,000 square feet, 7,000 square feet and under. And that's not surprising. It's fairly typical in a situation like this, you would see smaller companies react quicker because their tolerance level for um, no staff in the office, reduced um, income, productivity is down. I mean, all those types of things, usually the bigger companies can withstand that longer. Um, So it's, so what we've seen up till now is a fairly significant increase of sublease spaces come to the market and we'll continue to see that. And from here going forward, you'll start to see a lot bigger organizations bringing space out onto the market and that will just continue to increase um, and they'll get bigger. you know, and that's just part of companies adjusting. You know, most companies, especially financial services uh, companies, you know, they can withstand, you know, 90 days of, of kind of being in a situation like this with mass, you know, massive reduction in, uh, in capacity and income coming in. But beyond 90 days, you'll start to see companies making a lot of adjustments. So I think we're still in that period of time. So the first wave that everybody saw was, all the retail tenants, probably the most notable thing that you would see on the news. That's, you know, on the ground, it's front facing, everybody deals with them. So that was kind of like the most impactful thing that everybody saw and they're all kind of adjusting now. Then the smaller office companies start to adjust and bring their space to the market, you know, and reduce in size or close shop or whatever the case may be. And then now you'll start to see the bigger companies in the office towers, which aren't as front facing from a public perspective. You'll start to see those all start to come on now and adjust in size and make adjustments to, um, to sort of a, a offset the, the, the current uh, environment right. in, the, in the business world. Um, and so, I mean, in addition to sort of companies kind of exiting out of the urban office markets. It's also becoming more expensive to operate given all the the different rules and guidelines um, for like health and safety. Do you think, I mean, these added costs are going to have much of an impact? Well, they don't help when, uh, you know, when you're, when you're, when everything, everything's reduced, um, you know, like, like essentially most companies, everybody's just put a clamp down on, on, spending any unnecessary capital. So, um, you know, capital expenditures, full lockdown, discretionary spending is over. Um, and all kind of spending has just gone centralized. So that's frustrating when you're really trying to compete and you're trying to run your business. And now all of a sudden I got to do that plus add on all the extra costs of, you know, PPE for everybody in the office and where do I source that and who's doing it. And now I can only bring in so many staff members and I got to get twice as much cleaning. Um, I got to get, you know, possibly security. So there's all these types of costs that people have to add on. I don't think that those costs are massive um, to the point where they're, they're really going to be driving things one or one way or the other, but there's no, no doubt that that's become a, just another challenge to just throw on the pile. Right. Right. Um, so if we kind of look ahead, you know, coming out of 
COVID-19, if, if we can call it that, um, like what opportunities do you see in the next 12 months for commercial real estate? And, you know, you touched on elevators and things like that, but how do you think some of these commercial spaces might be repurposed? Um, well, you know, I guess there's a good side and a bad side of all these subleases coming to the market. So um, the, the bad side is, is, you know, if, if, if you're seeing a lot of subleases come to the market, usually that's a sign or coincides with things that aren't, you know, going terribly well in the economy. So that's not great. Uh, but if you're a company that's starting out and you want to get uh, a business set up, it um, prior to coming into the whole COVID situation for Vancouver, at least, it was very expensive to set up an office. It was expensive to, it, you know, Firstly, it was hard to find because the vacancy was very, very low. Um, then if you found it, you'd have to sort of rent it. There's a cost there. And then you had to fix it up and put a whole bunch of capital in it to get it up and going. Furniture and wiring and improvements and all those types of things. And that cost uh, to set up an office has, over the last 10 years, about doubled. And... So it's gotten very expensive to set up offices and, 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 and hence the success of co-working. A lot of co-working success has come from the fact that it's just hugely capital intensive to set up an office. So if I have a business and I've got a half a dozen people, if I can just pay a monthly rent, walk in and my phones and desks and offices and lease and all those things are taken care of and I can just pay a monthly rent, that's pretty easy. But if I got to start putting up a whole bunch of capital to get that office going and set up cost time, that's pretty expensive. And so a lot of successes come from that. So with all these subleases space and all these spaces coming to the market, you can circumvent all that and just take over a space that somebody has spent a whole bunch of money setting up. They could have phones, offices, everything ready to go. And you know, what you otherwise would have spent setting up your office, you can now drive back into your business. So from an opportunity perspective, I would say setting up a business, that's what I would see as being, you know, a lot of opportunities that are going to come forward today from that. I think that um, from a sales perspective, you know, we're probably going to see a number of buildings and investments and come to the market that um, you otherwise would have never seen over the last 10 years. I mean, we've had a run of 10 years of amazing business in, uh, in the commercial real estate side. And, um, and, you know, a small really, or a large ideal, what, you know, what anybody on this call would consider an a property, you know, a lot of the times people would just would never even get a chance to see those. And so now you'll get a chance to see those because what ends up happening is a lot of properties are owned by um, investment companies that adhere to a balance between all kinds of different assets. And when the stock market adjusts and drops significantly, the ratio between stock market holdings and real estate holdings goes completely out of balance. And when that happens, then they have to divest themselves because if the, if the company has to adhere to a certain balance for whatever reasons, then um, they're going to divest themselves of real estate. And so I think a lot of opportunities are going to come forward as a result of that. And they have already. Um, so there's kind of a number of opportunities that are going to come out just depending on sort of what segment of the market you're thinking about. Right. And so um, if, you know, you're someone who's interested in commercial real estate, 
estate investing and looking to pick up properties, um, you know, with the generally they're kind of only as good as the leases on the buildings. What do you say to people who are, you know, looking for that over the yeah. next year? Well, that's a good question. So, um, it's, you know, there's, 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 there's risk and you got to be comfortable with the risk. Uh, you know, typically the higher the risk, the higher the return. So, you know, if you buy a building and the only occupant to that building is the Royal bank, then, um, you know, that's going to be a very low return property, but there's very low risk, you know, whether you're willing to take a little bit more risk and get more return, you know, uh, so for myself, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm fairly comfortable with a building that has vacancy because vacancy doesn't scare me. I know how to deal with vacancy and I know the prospects of what it will lease and what won't lease. So, you know, I think that you just have to be comfortable personally. And so if you're, um, if you're investing and there's a bunch of companies out there that offer the ability to, you know, write a check small or large and they'll handle all the bringing in the experts and the leasing and the property management and all that kind of thing. So you can own part of a property, but you don't have to take all the risk. There's a lot of different ways to get involved. So it just depends on your risk tolerance, uh, how much money you want to spend and um, you know, what you're comfortable in investing in on a go forward basis. Right. And so um, what do you like, what do you consider to be, a solid tenant when you're looking to fill a vacancy in a commercial building? Um, you know, when you look at the tenant profile, I mean, you know, like, of course, using an example like the Royal Bank's pretty easy. Um, that's an obvious one. But generally speaking, most tenancy profiles aren't the Royal Bank. So you want to look at a tenancy profile that's reasonably mixed, you know, one that has a number of tenancies that have been around for a long time. I mean, I generally like to at least understand what companies do and how they make their money. And if they've been around for a long time and they've got a good management team, I mean, the management team's a pretty easy way to get a handle on um, how successful some of these companies are. So, you know, it's just a little bit of rolling up your sleeves and doing a little bit of research. You know, the beauty of the internet today is it's not many secrets out there. So, you know, I can look at uh, just sitting in my house and spending two hours. I can look at almost any company, take a look at every single person on their executive team and understand what they've done over the course of the last 10 years. You can pretty much get a reasonable handle as to kind of what that company is going to do. And is it going to be consistent with the performance of those executives over the last, you know, 10 years. So, between looking at, you know, financial information and all those other things that, you know, you, everybody's got access to, um, you know, it's not hard to make determinations on sort of a mix. So I think, I think a reasonable mix of risk will give you a reasonable sense of return because, you know, I mean, you know, before COVID, you know, if, you, if there was a building that uh, had the Royal Bank in it that had the whole thing and the risk was near zero. have and make some forward gain you know two to three percent is not not great so you know most people would like to see something a lot higher than that that means you need to take a bit of risk but it, the risk needs to be managed right um so i'm just being mindful of time we want to save 
enough time for questions. So maybe just one last from for me. Um, you know, what resources do you spend time on to stay up to date in the industry? And this is for people on the line who are looking to get into maybe commercial real estate investing. Um, where would you where would you go? Where would you project them? Uh, I mean, I'm kind of lucky because from a commercial real estate perspective, uh, you know, one of the benefits of 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 kind of what I do day to day is I'm plugged into a network of 15,000 individuals, you know, being, you know, spread out all over the world with almost every single layer of expertise you can imagine commercial real estate. So, um, so from that perspective, um, you know, it's really easy for me to sort of have access to all those things, irrespective of what the issue may be from a commercial real estate perspective. So, um, so I would say my internal resources are probably the best. Um, you know, I tend to do a, you know, a lot of research myself on companies that I deal with or um, are somehow invested on, with. So if they're tenants or um, partners or whatever, uh, I tend to do quite a bit of research upfront because, um, you know, when you make a mistake, uh, mistakes can be costly and they can be uh, really tough to unwind and um, better to just spend the time doing the due diligence up front. So, uh, so, so the, so the, the easy answer for me is, is I've got access to those things um, just because of where I work and what I do. And outside of that, you know, it's amazing what you can find on Google. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Information abundance. Um, okay, well, so we've got about 15 minutes left, so I'm going to turn it over to Steve Jagger uh, to facilitate some questions from people on the line. Just uh, let him switch over here quickly. Sure. Hey, Marco, thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. I've got uh, a handful of questions that have come in from um, the crowd here. They're kind of all over the place as usual, but I'll, uh, I've grouped them together a bit. So here's, here's, uh, here's the first one. It says, do you think you'll see commercial towers uh, somehow adjust to add outdoor space, i.e. adding decks, patios, or roof decks? Uh, you know, that's a trend that's been going on for, um, for a long time outside of COVID. And, um, you know, I've seen most of the new buildings that are being built, that being one of the top priorities of most of the developers. So Bentall Center, for example, um, you know, that's a pretty iconic piece of real estate in downtown Vancouver. That property was bought recently by a company called Hudson Pacific. And um, I think most people who at least work downtown or are familiar with that property would agree that that building has long since lost its glory. And, um, and so what they're doing is they're gonna be redeveloping that site and, and that site's gonna add another couple of office buildings, but rather than being skyscrapers, they'll be ground scrapers. And so essentially just big floor plates, lower rise buildings, with lots of outdoor space, lots of rooftop space. And what that essentially does is, you know, two years ago or even currently to some extent, if you were in Bentall Center and you were up in the tower and you were looking down or you were just experiencing being there as a tenant, there wasn't very much outdoor space, but the property was massive. And if you looked out the windows, all you would see is just car park and concrete, which is not pleasant. And now what they're gonna do is transform that by putting lower buildings uh, to take up all that area, take out all the parking, put it uh, underground, 
and then cover them with lower buildings and the tops of those lower buildings will be all green, lots of decks. And that's a trend that's been going on for, for, for years and is really coming to the forefront now. So, so, so to answer your question, yes, for sure. Uh, we're gonna see more of that. And I think we'll see even more of it because of COVID because people want to just be able to have more access to outdoor space. To have a meeting outside would be, uh, you know, who doesn't like that? Yeah, that's true. Um, on the Bentall thing, is, are they going to take each building down one at a time or they just no, throw everybody no, out? There's, no, there's four towers there, uh, towers yeah. one to four. And, but if you, look, if you look at a Google satellite image of the site, the four towers will stay. They're going to get refurbished and they'll stay in place. And then on the land in between, they had the ability to add one big tower. And the previous owner was just going to plop down one more big office tower. Rather than doing that, they'll leave the four towers in place and add two lower buildings that are like 10 stories. And then those 10 story buildings will have big floor plates, which most companies like now. I mean, most companies would prefer to have all their staff on one floor versus five floors for all kinds of obvious reasons. But by doing that, you create all this roof area and patio area that you can landscape, which then everybody would get access to. It benefits benefits everybody within the whole property. That's cool. Yeah, it makes makes a lot of sense. So kind of uh, sticking with that, information this question i think ties in well to it is do you see prices now differing between the lower floors and the upper floors i.e are is it more attractive now to be lower so that you could use the stairs not wait in line for elevators all that stuff that's going to come as a negative aspect of being too tall or too too high up in the tower yeah i I, you know i've done a lot of consulting work over the years and it's and it's one of the things that i do specifically is consulting work on these new properties on how to make them attractive um, and, and uh, to tenants and businesses. And one of the big challenges is, you know, how do you make the lower part of the building as attractive as the upper part of the building? Because for years, going back into the past, the top of the building was what everybody wanted. They wanted to be at the top, they wanted the views and it's great. Well, you know, this is gonna help that situation. And, and a lot of what's happened over the last few years is when uh, developers are looking at building these buildings, they're adding bigger, lar- larger floors at the base of the buildings with access to outdoor space to then make the lower part of the building just as attractive as the upper part of the building. Now, now what I think you're saying, Stephen, is, 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 you know, is there gonna be less interest in the upper part of the building than the lower part of the building? And, and I would probably say to some extent, yes. Um, you know, I just don't think being at the upper part of the building is going to be for years. It was, I don't know, people just liked to show off and be at the top with the big views. And, you know, that's just kind of lost its luster. Um, people just don't like to see, you know, uh, gross amounts of flash. And they just don't like working with companies that are like that. Um, so, you know, I think that going forward, there'll probably be less of a, of a spread between, you know, this really high rent for the top floors and maybe for the lower floors, there might be more interest in being uh, down in the lower part of the building. And you got to remember people make these decisions for 10 or 20 years. So, you know, it, it would be unreasonable to think that, you know, a pandemic or three months would all of a sudden change what 
people have done for years and people will do going forward. So I think it'll have some effect. It won't be so drastic where you'll see like a complete inversion. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, do you think regional retail centers will eventually all have co-working space or a business center to provide an office for corporate employees who don't want to commute? So maybe they've, you know, their office is downtown, they live in Surrey, maybe they go to the office once a week, but they also don't really like working at home. So they go to some sort of satellite office in a, in a retail setting. Yeah. And you know, that's, 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 you know, that's, that's probably, it's a large reason why co-working's done so well is because they can really offer, you know, a lot of those types of options to people very easily. Um, you know, now co-working's had to completely rethink how they do everything because think about co-working for a sec, you know, co-working is just completely based on uh, co-mingling, being in tight space, and everybody being together in an open environment, not exactly COVID friendly. So, you know, they've had to completely rethink how they're going to run their business going forward. Um, you know, co-working spaces have gone to, you know, near zero occupancy um, and they're not long-term leases. So, you know, you can get out of them pretty quick. So, you know, you know, I think a lot of co-working companies are going to struggle to make it through, uh, which is unfortunate because I think they provided a great service to people. So I do think you're going to see a lot of that. Um, and I think a lot of people will, will still continue to use it. It's just how it will look and operate will be different than it was, you know, six months ago. Cool. This uh, question just came in from Andrew and it's funny. I was kind of talking about this the other day with someone, but he says for new buildings that are developed in the future, might we see more elevators? So there's less crowding, uh, given future pandemic concerns. Um, I, and I, I literally was talking about this the other day is like, maybe they'll be able to take an existing elevator shaft that would have one elevator and make six smaller ones where it's like the, the Jetsons where you get into your little tube and it sucks you up, but it can do more with the same amount of footprint that an elevator's in. Do you think there's going to be changes in, in how elevators are designed, technology, not touching buttons, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, you know, uh, there will be changes. There's no doubt. Um, adding more elevators is like, you know, I've been part of those discussions for years and it's highly complex because, you know, the, the, the more elevators you add, the bigger the core of a building gets, the bigger the core of the building gets, the more, the less usable space there is on the floor. And, you know, there's all kinds of complications that go with that. So I think it'll be something that'll be discussed, but that's not an easy one to answer because it really depends on the specific property. But what I will say that will be a change for sure and it's already a change that's being implemented now is as a lot of owners and developers are looking at making buildings and being the, uh, be able to access them on a no touch basis, that's either already in place or coming. And you'll, you'll see new, new technologies coming forward where you know, your phone will open the doors, um, the phone will get the elevator for you. There'll be an app specifically for your building so it'll give you the ability to access, you know, the bathrooms and just everything without, you know, a real kind of touchless kind of moving around in the office space. You know, I think that that's, you know, I mean, like, like what's going to happen with shaking hands? Like, I mean, you know, that question is. I feel like, like that's already okay. over. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, is it over or, you know, is it not over? I mean, that's, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, I mean, I, in some ways I, I, you know, at this point I, you know, you sit there and you go, I don't know if that's coming back. 
so, you know, for sure a touchless uh, environment where you're accessing office buildings is a no-brainer. It's just, that's an easy thing to implement. It probably should have been done. I mean, I don't know how many times over flu season, you know, I'm walking through office buildings all the time and I'm sitting there going, I don't know how many doorknobs do I need to touch before I, you know, make it to just, you know, this spot. And, you know, when it's September to, you know, December and it's flu season, I mean, you know, that's just, you know, that's probably something that should have just been done a long time ago. And now this has just brought it more to the forefront. Yeah, I agree. So we're almost out of time here. I got one more question for you. Um, what's the what's the worst case correction that you expect the commercial and residential real estate markets to like? Do you have a worst case thought on how how bad this could go? <laughs> I guess the, the best case is it's over tomorrow. We're back. Everything's sort of back to normal. But do you have a, an idea of like how bad this this could be? Yeah. So. Um... I'll, I'll put it in terms like this. So, uh, you know, you look at look at Vancouver in, in contrast to Calgary, for example. So before COVID, Calgary had a serious vacancy problem. They had all kinds of issues leading into it, which we don't need to go into now. Everybody's aware that watch the news. And they were struggling in all respects. Um, contrast, you know, to Vancouver, where super diverse uh, city, uh, the city uh, had very, very low vacancy, uh, as opposed to Calgary, super high vacancy. Uh, we had really high rents. Uh, so we were really well poised for something like this to occur, or something bad to occur. So when you look at it in terms of office space for a second, you know, if we got a million square feet that came back to our marketplace, today, downtown Vancouver. So that would be equivalent of say three office towers. Let's just say three office towers of vacant space came available, it's a million square feet. That would only represent about 3% of vacancy. Right now, leading into this, we, were, we had like a 1% vacancy. That would then move us up to 4% vacancy. So even if we doubled it again, let's just say 2 million square feet came available. That puts us up to 6% vacancy plus what was already there, there's 7% vacancy. 7% vacancy globally is a pretty normal type of vacancy number. So like when you see a vacancy downtown, just to put it in context, because most people on this call probably wouldn't know, but at nine to 10%, that's like a balanced market, equally in favor of the landlord and the tenant. So when you're at a 1% vacancy, it's essentially the landlords call the shots. And I don't think it's super healthy to have a 1% vacancy for 10 years. Because every year that that happens, it just gets more and more difficult. So, you know, when you ask about Vancouver, we were in a really good spot leading into this, thankfully. Unfortunately, for places like Calgary, you know, it could be pretty devastating and it could take a whole lot of years for them to get out of it. Um, so, you know, thankfully, you know, most people here on this call are from Vancouver. I think we're going to do reasonably well here even if we do get a bunch of closures and space coming back to the market and all those kinds of things. Um, so I think we're well poised here, but you know, places that were struggling going into this, unfortunately will probably take a pretty bad hit. Cool. Thanks for that. I'll bring a uh... that wraps another episode of the Addy podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe to get the next episode. For more information, visit addyinvest.com. Until next time.